Everything you need is already inside of you. The world would not be what it is without you. When we begin to create change within us, we begin to create change in the world around us. Your journey to becoming your best self as the whole person starts right now. Hello and welcome to our podcast, the Become Your Best podcast and webinar series hosted by us. I'm Lauren Sweeney. Here, I'm the Vice President at Rise Up For You. And today, I bring you our esteemed guest, Margaret Hefferman from the UK. She resides in London, and we're going to talk to you a little bit about her and bring her onto the show. Dr. Margaret Heffernan produced programs for the BBC for 13 years. She then moved to the U.S. where she spearheaded multimedia productions for many well-known brands. The author of six books, Margaret's third book, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril, ah, sounds like emotional intelligence, <laughs> was named one of the most important business books in the decade by Financial Times. In 2015, she was awarded the Transmission Prize for a bigger prize, why competition isn't everything and how we can do better. It was described as meticulously researched, engaging, and well-written. She also has many TED Talks. Her TED Talks have been seen by over 13 million people. And in 2015, her TED published Beyond Measure, The Big Impact of Small Changes. She is well known in many different places. And today we are so grateful to have her on the Rise Up For You podcast, where we can talk about these interesting and difficult conversations, whether you're an entrepreneur, a company owner, or a leader alike. We're excited, Margaret, that you are here on our podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lauren. I'm really glad to be with you. Absolutely. So talk to me about how you started in, in this kind of conversation and mm. many years of leading people really mm. in, in different facets and writing books and TED Talks. But how did you begin your, your conversation in this light? Yeah, well, I think I had a piece of, of very good luck in a way, which is the first sort of real job I had when I worked for the BBC. I had a, a really fantastic boss. And because it was very early in my career, I kind of thought, well, that was what all bosses were like, you know. So he gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, he gave me a lot of encouragement. I had a lot of space to roam and experiment. And um, and it was, you know, as I look back on it now, it was an absolutely stunning experience. Mm. And And then it isn't that I had particularly terrible bosses later, but I just was kept being struck by how much um you know how much less rewarding most bosses and most departments and most institutions were and i just started asking myself a lot of hard questions about gee why is it done like this and this doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense and and you know and after a while i just you know patterns started to emerge and you just kept thinking well listen there's a lot of entrenched attitudes and beliefs here which which don't really work, you know. <laughs> and um, and you know, then I've, I've been, I've, as you said, you know, I've run a number of companies and I ran a number of tech companies in the U.S. and and then I reached a point where I thought, really, I've, I've gone about as far as I can go. I I've loved it, what the work I've done. I loved working in the U.S. and I loved working in tech, but I really got to a point where I wanted to do something else. And 
just by kind of accident almost, a friend who was a literary agent suggested that I start writing and suggested I write a book about the internet since I'd been very much at the, you know, the beginning of it. And I said, I don't really want to do that because I think it's either too early or too late. And I think actually it was way too early. Um, but I was really captivated by the idea of writing. And, and so my first book came out of that conversation, really, which was about the rise of and barriers to women's corporate careers. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote another book about the rise of female entrepreneurship and the sort of barriers there, but also why women actually were turning out to be such particularly gifted entrepreneurs. And then... Um, you know, this sort of tendency of mine to keep thinking, wow, why is it we work the way that we work when so much of it doesn't work? <laughs> Never really left me. And that's really where the rest of my books have come from. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great conversation. And you wrote the books pre-COVID and uh, it's still so relevant today. And, yeah. you know, we have men and women and that listen to the show, but a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of leaders and really looking at, okay, can I do it? A lot of imposter syndrome or, you know, they've been kind of derailed, especially needing to caretake maybe for young children or older parents or anything mm -hmm. in between. And, and this sense of loss of identity. Did you see that in any of your, your research for the books or the Ted talks? Yeah, I mean, I think the loss of identity is quite profound. Um, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is um, partly, obviously, in the context of the pandemic, how much people took to working from home. And it made me wonder, well, why is it that companies didn't know how much people hated their commute and how much people hated about working in the office? You know, so that's a phenomenal disconnect. But I'm also very struck by the way in which, you know, people start their careers with quite a lot of energy and imagination and creativity. And somehow along the way, that seems to get knocked out of them. And I really don't think it's aging. Um, I get lots of invitations from corporations asking me to speak on the subject of creativity and curiosity. And pretty much the first thing I do is ask them, well, you know, everybody was born creative and curious. So what is it you think you're doing to your people? That's <laughs> that? Yeah. It's not really the response that they expect because they, it's easier for them to blame the workforce than to blame their culture. But actually, I think a lot of it is about the culture. You know, if you work people long hours, if you give them too much work to do, then they do develop a kind of learned helplessness and all the things that fed their creativity and their curiosity withers through neglect. And I think there are just way, way, way too many environments where that is the case and where people went in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and come out just glad it's over. Yeah. Absolutely. And we're seeing that more and more today. I also wonder if people didn't really think they had a choice in, in the commute. There really was no hybrid workforce. There wasn't a working from home. So we we as employees didn't really think about it. And employers didn't need to put a lens on it, right? A microscope to the culture because now it's flipped, right? The great resignation yeah. from 2021 has bled into 2022. 
And now we are asked to really evaluate what do cultures look like? What are your values? How are you going to retain good talent? Now that there's a microscope and people aren't staying in toxic work environments, it's, it's almost as if as a culture, we as people said, enough is enough. Wait, I deserve more. I can speak for more. Yeah. And I've also seen a collective consciousness of other entrepreneurs or employees saying, ah, wow, it, it, I could really choose an amazing culture. Well, then I'm jumping ship and I'm going to choose it. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think, you know, you said something really interesting there, which was we didn't really notice that we didn't like the commute. What's happening to people where they're losing their own self-awareness? You know, and a lot of that is about cognitive overload. It's having a mind that's too busy. It's got too much stuff running around in their heads. Yeah. It's a lack of thinking time. And I think what's really interesting about this phenomenon is I see it at every level. I don't just see it at the level of, you know, very mechanical, tedious, repetitive jobs. I see it absolutely from the shop floor to the C-suite. People who have lost touch with themselves, people who have lost touch with their bodies, people who have lost touch with their families, with the sources of inspiration and insight that used to feed them. Yeah. And they kind of don't notice themselves disappearing to themselves. Yeah. And um, often to the point that they don't even complain about it because they haven't noticed it happening. Now, this, I think, is really, really damaging to the individuals and to, you know, to uh, the organizations that employ them. Absolutely. And I think it's quite rare these days to, to encounter people who feel, yeah, I'm really growing in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And we know that's what people want. We know it's what gives people huge amounts of self, uh, satisfaction, the sense that they're growing and they're developing and they're becoming more capable and they're learning more about the world and they're having more access to a broader range of people. But, you know, I think increasingly, I mean, at least up to the pandemic, and I'm not totally convinced that the pandemic has put an end to this, you know, we have tended to treat to treat people like bad robots and hope that if we manage them better, they'll become good robots. But actually, it's not it's not robots that those people want to become. Yes, absolutely. And I think also businesses are realizing they actually don't want a robot. They want a thriving individual that's happy and creative. And I absolutely goes back, as you said, to self-awareness and then that yeah. self management, allowing ourselves that space. Like you said, how did we not realize that the commute was wearing on us? Or did we? And we were resigned. Where do we allow our creativity to erode? And like, I love what you said in the beginning. It's really not about age. You can intentionally be thriving at any age. It's just that if we don't intentionally regenerate ourselves, have time for us, have time to rethink things, then naturally things just kind of go on and on and it doesn't work so well. Yeah. So what are some strategies that you would recommend if somebody's listening and they say, yes, Margaret, I, I've lost some of that self-awareness. Yeah. I want to take personal ownership. Where do I begin? Well, I think it begins really simply with carving out some time for yourself to think about where am I? What am I happy with? What am I unhappy with? 
And, you know, and that really does take time when you are not doing anything else. Now, some people prefer to write because it helps them to think. Some people prefer to get on a bike and or go for a run. But it has to be fundamentally time that's free of interruption and where you know that, you know, you've got a decent half hour to ask yourself, actually, how am I today? And how, you know, what do I feel about different parts of my life now? And I think that has to become a habit. You know, it's something one has to do on a kind of regular basis. Because it's, you know, having been trained out of that degree of self-awareness means it's going to take a while to get used to it again. And some of the stuff that we ignore is, of course, the stuff that makes us most uncomfortable. So it's going to take quite a while before we can face it. But I think, you know, if you prefer doing it by running or cycling or whatever, you know, make some notes afterwards, you know, make this real to yourself. Um, another way I know that people tend to think about it is they tend to think about different facets of their lives. So they'll think about their personal lives, they'll think about their financial lives, they'll think about their professional lives, and they'll kind of put them into those categories. And I remember one woman I interviewed for my very first book talked about having a personal board of directors. And what she meant by that was she had kind of one friend, colleague, you know, close associate whom she thought of as the person she would kind of go to if she had a, an important decision to make about finance or an important decision about to make about her personal life or her professional life or her spiritual life. And she thought of these people as people who knew her well and cared about her and that she would keep in touch with. And it was kind of her way of keeping in touch with herself in a way. So I think having a sense of who are the people who know me well and care about me and and making sure you make the time to spend with them and getting a sense of how are they, how am I, how are we, is a kind of good comparison. But um, the enemy of all this reflection is extreme busyness. Yeah, absolutely. On all sides. Yeah, And I love what you said about having some intentional time to think and then taking notes afterwards if you're, you know, using exercising or something. And then also, how do I sustain it? So how do I make it a habit? What mm. intentionally can I do? We like to talk about it when you're mentioning the different facets of your life, the six pillars, you know, you have your health and you have your romance and you have your career. And I know, especially in the, from those I've interviewed in the UK and then the US and especially in Canada and Australia, we don't do a great job at really honoring the whole person. You know, you have we have yeah. all these different facets and we really just kind of narrow in on who you are with work pretty much and your yeah. titles. And especially we've seen that during the pandemic and those titles kind of being pulled away. And then who am I? And yeah. so that intentional self-reflection time makes such a difference. And I think, I mean, the other thing that you know, that I do, which may sound rather uh, odd, is I do actually sit down with my husband at the beginning of the year and ha we have this conversation together about each other, about our family, about our health, about our finances, about what do we want to do this year in terms of our social life, our 
intellectual life. Um, but it is a kind of annual appraisal. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because we don't especially then make it, um, you know, we don't derive a plan or a task list from it. But it's quite striking how when we then go back a year later and look at what we've done in that year, we've generally done something that spoke to those themes and issues. So yeah. simply the fact of having devoted time to think about it in a reasonably structured way has informed the decisions that we've made across the rest of the year. Absolutely. That intentionality and then also tracking it. Your energy goes where focus flows. And so having that type of intentionality, we we also like to do that around New Year's or even every quarter. Where am yeah. I at with my health and my money and my romance and like whatever matters to me? Exactly. What is the best place that we can find you? We can find your TED Talks and your books. Would that be on your yeah. website? Yeah, they will all be on my website, which is just www.mheffernan.com. Um, and if you Google me also, you'll find the website almost instantly. Awesome. Fantastic. And Heffernan, if you're listening to the audio, is spelled H-E-F-F-E-R-N-A-N. And it will be in the show notes as well. Well, Margaret, we love to ask a question, and that is, what does rise up for you mean to you? What does it mean to me? I think it's about aspiration. And I don't think of aspiration particularly in terms of, um, oh, I don't know, financial goals or status goals. I think of it as freedom to rise up and act on the things that are meaningful to me. And, you know, this comes back to where our conversation started, which is around a sense of agency, of a sense that uh, it's up to me to decide where I'm going to spend my energy, you know, where I'm going to spend my time, how I'm going to express what it is I think I am and the contribution I think I can make to the world. And it's definitely not about sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That creativity, that spark, uh, yeah. not allowing it to kind of disappear. But also that sense that, you know, I only have one life and this is it. And um, and I don't just want to consume. I want to make a contribution. And that's why one rises up to make that contribution. And it may be public or private. It may be little or large, but it's mine. And it is a form of self-expression and self-discovery. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your books, for your contributions, for your work and your continued creativity and renewing of yourself. So then you can be better for others. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thanks for your wonderful, wonderful questions and conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic conversation that really applies to us at any level of our career, whether we're an entrepreneur or working at a company, whether we're in the middle of a career change. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for rising up for yourself and showing up today. I want to give you a free gift. You can download our confidence kit at riseupforyou.com slash confidence. You'll get access to six videos and a workbook that myself and our vice and our president and CEO Netta put together. We would love to give that to you. Until the next podcast, I'm rooting for you and we will see you soon.